This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. What is the difference between mere life and the good life? Aristotle once said, the good life is a life informed by the principles that express our highest ideals, life as we would like to live it. The good life is an education that rattles and decenters. Relationships, sustenance, and aspirations. A life of reflection and agency in concert with others in pursuit of collective well-being. The good life is to equate instead with a healthier public life. Pursuing knowledge, cultivating friendship, preserving freedom, satisfying needs. The good life is having a language to express your deeper thoughts, emotion, and beliefs. The good life is when students' eyes light up at the realization that their engineering work will improve other people's lives. Stay with us as some of UC San Diego's finest scholars share their pursuit of the good life. It's a huge pleasure to introduce to you tonight a true UCSD treasure, Carol Patton. Professor Padden is an internationally recognized expert in sign language, both in its practical realizations and in its theoretical implications, as well as an expert on deaf culture. She's the author of, by my count, five books on these topics. She is currently Sanford I. Berman Professor of Language and Human Communication, She is also Associate Dean in the Division of Social Sciences and this year serving as the Interim Vice Chancellor for Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. Her work has been supported by the U.S. Department of Education, the Spencer Foundation, the National Science Foundation, and the National Institutes of Health. She is a member of the American Association for the Advancement of Science the Linguistic Society of America, and at the top of the list, she is the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Award. Tonight, she will be speaking to us on different lives, different languages. Please join me in welcoming to the podium Professor Carol Patton. Thank you. Thank you very much um, for this warm, um, warm welcome. I, um, I'm going to be speaking tonight. Um, this is Marla Powell. She interprets for me here at UCSD. So I'm just asking her to interpret a little bit that you get, get the idea of what a real interpreter looks like. If you happen to be watching when Obama was at the memorial service for Nelson Mandela, how many of you knew that was the fake interpreter? Yes. You can see it in five minutes. This is the real one. She's not repeating the same sign, but she keeps changing. But anyway, I just wanted to make sure that you got a full view, extended view, of a real, live, genuine sign language interpreter. Okay, thanks, Mala. 
Um, it's my yes, Mala. Way to go. When, um, when I was asked to come and speak on the topic of the good life, it gave me pause. Not because I don't have anything to say on the subject. Actually, it's the opposite. I have a lot to say because I think about it all the time. I grew up differently than I think everyone else in this room. I grew up signing. I'm not sure of the day or the month, but sometime when I was about two years old, I started to speak English. My parents took me to preschool, and I started practicing using spoken language. I'll tell more of this story as we go along this evening, but my talk isn't about me, although it may seem that way. It's a story about the good life, and it begins with some facts about human language. It's impossible to think of a single thing or event in this world that's not impacted by language. Every human uses the language, unless there's severe disability or some other reason to not have access to human beings. Even in the most impoverished conditions, humans will learn language. There is an estimated 6,900 human languages in the world. If we were to make a list of those languages, we could probably name the top 20. The most popular language of the world is? Chinese. It's the most popular language with one billion speakers. You may have thought it was English, and indeed English is the most widely used language if you combine first and second language learning. It's estimated at three billion. But the number of first language users of English is estimated at about 350 million, so there's actually more speakers of English who are not from UK or America, which makes it the next popular first language. Next down the list, in order of population, is Spanish, Hindi, Arabic, Bengali, Russian, Portuguese, Japanese, and German at 100 million speakers. You didn't hear French at 11th or Dutch. They don't make the top 10. Once we get past the top 20 or 30, there's a drop-off in the number of speakers. You may not know this. The languages we know are in this top group, let's say the top 20. Hebrew, Danish, Swedish, Korean. Then the languages drop dramatically. Here you can see 50% of the world's languages are spoken by less than 10,000 people. You can look here in the middle, 27%, 29%. So 50% of the world's languages are spoken by less than 10,000 people. That means half of 6,900 languages, or about 3,500 languages, have 10,000 or even fewer speakers. 
that's about the population of Delana Beach. It certainly, it's certainly not the population of the university. 500 languages have less than 1,000 speakers. What all this tells us is that the majority of the languages in the world are small, unlike the top 20 languages. Small languages, you don't recognize the name. Meidu, Miwok, Holikashuk, they're all Native American languages of the United States. Some 15,000 years ago in human history, we had as many as 15,000 languages, but we've been declining. And we're declining even more rapidly in the last 100 years. Some linguists have estimated we will lose half of our 6,900 languages before the next century. Some languages disappear as a because of warfare, as in the case of Aramaic, the spoken in parts of Syria. Or there are languages that are now in danger in southern part of Somalia. Some languages die because young speakers would rather speak English, as in the case of Walpiring, spoken in north central Australia. If half of the languages die in the next 100 years, that means a language dies every two weeks. And nearly all of those languages that died two weeks ago, and the language that's going to die this week, you've never heard of them. Is it really so tragic if a language dies? It's not quite like losing a species where an entire lineage of life disappeared. What happened to communities with dying languages is that young speakers shift to speaking another language, typically a large dominant language in the region. The children of Dami, reindeer herders, they're also called Laps in northern Finland. They speak Finnish, and they may no longer speak one of the nearly extinct Dami languages that are native to the region. Speakers don't become mute when a language dies. They're already speaking another language. And over time, the dominant language takes over all the functions of the dying language. First, you use it in public places, in the school, on the playground, and then the dominant language comes inside the family and the church. As the culture changes, the language changes too. Does it matter if the children of reindeer herders don't know the words for the different ages of a reindeer? Maybe this is too abstract. Maybe too remote, we think, Dami, Finland, let's bring this closer to home. My husband grew up in coastal South Carolina, where they speak the dialect of English broadly called the Southern dialect. You may not know this, but there are actually multiple Southern dialects, not just one. You're probably most familiar, unless you're from the region, you're most familiar with the one that's used for country music, which is the Kentucky Appalachian dialect. 
but the particular one that my husband spoke when he was growing up around the Petey River area in South Carolina, it's along the Atlantic coast, it's declining in youth, and young children speak either a standard dialect or a different dialect of the region. Does it really matter if one dialect fades and declines? Maybe we didn't really know the difference. Is it okay? After all, another one should take this place. But maybe we're asking a different question. How much of who we are and what we know is because of our language? Those of us in this room who speak a language smaller than English, anyone here speak or did she grow up with a language other than English? Okay. You, um, you might care about this question. How much of the good life is tied to which language or languages we use? I don't know about you, but I think about this all the time, every day, in fact. I grew up using American Sign Language. I didn't learn spoken English until I went to preschool and kindergarten. Even then, I didn't really speak spoken English very well until I left the school for deaf children at age eight and I enrolled in a school that was in my neighborhood. I enrolled in third grade with hearing children who spoke only English. My parents took me out of the small school and enrolled me in this public school because I was hard of hearing. I could hear well enough to learn spoken English. I used ASL every day at school and at home, and then I remember the day I had to learn another language. I have no memory of how I learned to speak or how I learned English. I don't remember words or sentences, but oddly, I remember one thing. I remember the bus ride, traveling between home and school. It felt like a vast distance, an interminably long trip, but it was probably just 20 minutes each way. ASL, American Sign Language, is one of the largest and most widely used sign languages of the world. We estimate there may be 300, 400,000 signers in, in the U.S. and in, in the English-speaking parts of Canada. We don't have a way to get a better count. We can only guess how many signers there are. But it makes American Sign Language a much more commonly used language than slamming or wallpapering. In the database of world languages, this is the same one that records all the human languages of the world, all 6,900. By the way, the number is increasing slightly. Now, why would that be? because you can discover that maybe what you thought was a dialect is really two separate languages. The linguists still debate what makes the language truly different and not a dialect of another. So in the same database, they started recording sign languages. They've recorded 130 different sign languages, every continent from South America, Africa, Europe, North America, Southeast Asia, Australia, 
not to mention islands in the Pacific and the Caribbean and elsewhere. In a central region of India, an anthropological linguist recently estimated that there are 28 different sign languages. Now why, why would there be so many? I'm, I'm getting to that. So why are, there, why are they different? Because of geography, <clears throat> distance, ethnicity, and religion. Groups of people, because they're separated for these reasons, don't interact, and different sign languages result. This will surprise you if you thought sign language is universal. It's not. There are probably three or four times more sign languages than we know about. Most of them, as with the numbers of spoken languages of the world, are used by small numbers. Some like American Sign Language, Japanese Sign Language, Brazilian Sign Language, and Ugandan Sign Language have hundreds of thousands of signers each. In Thailand, Bangkok sign language is used in a small village in a remote part of Thailand. But as young deaf signers go to school, they leave the village and travel to large cities. They want to learn the national Thailand sign language that's used there. Like the young speakers of Walpiring, young signers of Bancor sign language would rather use Thai sign language because then they can communicate with more deaf people, not just from their village, but living in other parts of Thailand. Okay, <clears throat> key question. How much of our ability to express ourselves, dream about the future, and compose poetry? is tied to the possibilities of our languages. Our words tightly associated with certain images. Benjamin Lee Worf proposed in 1940 that words are linked to images that are hard to refuse. He had been studying Native American languages of North America, many of which are now in danger. And he found in Hopi there's two different words for water, depending on whether it was in a container or in a natural body, such as the lake or a river. By the way, if you were thinking people from, people in your community have 30 different words for snow, it's not true, it's not 30. It, 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 went, from, it went from about 10 to 20 to 25 to 30. So that was a bit of an exaggeration, but different languages categorized differently. Also, the Hopi do not treat time as a sequence of countable segments. They see it as a singular flow stretching from the past to the future. Worf argued that words configure our ideas about concepts like time, and that Hopi does this differently from how it's done in European languages, including English. His work and that of his predecessor, Edward Sapir, who proposed a similar concept in 1920. Their descriptions of languages other than English and European languages launched a long debate about the relationship between language and thought, whether words give rise to thought 
or thought, perceived words, in which case words can only reflect <clears throat> or express the ideas we already have. <clears throat> the debate has continued to the present time. It's called the Warthian hypothesis, or sometimes it's the Peer-Warth hypothesis. Now, why am I talking about hypothesis from 1920 or 1940? Because as I will shortly show you, the ideas bear on this question of the good life. Do I think the same way you do? Do you think the same way I do? How would we know? Can we even compare? Are we alike or are we not? If you have a good life and you're different from me, what does that say about my life? <clears throat> There's several versions of the Warthian hypothesis. There's a weak version and a strong version. The strong version is that words determine thought. In the weak version of the hypothesis, words influence, but they don't determine thought. But what does it mean to influence thought or determine thought? How free are we from the confines of our language? In recent years, some linguists and cognitive scientists have tried different approaches to this question. Some of the most interesting work on this topic is being done right here on this campus at UCSD. Some of this work I do myself with my colleagues. If you stay with me long enough, you'll understand about these pictures that I've put up here on the screen. Okay, <clears throat> let's move from 1920, 1940. <clears throat> it, it's nice like, to talk, but I won't. I'll just sign. I mean, I'll talk. <clears throat> it's a good time to sign, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> Let's look at some of these recent studies that explore whether and how deeply words affect how we think. There's a large, growing body of work on the concept of metaphor. George Lakoff argues that when we describe our experiences, we often refer to space and time. We say, I've decided to leave it all behind me and move forward. Or we say, don't look back. It, it's gone. You don't have to face it anymore. The past is behind us and the future in front of us. But it is really just a manner of speaking. We don't really mean the future is in front of us and the past is behind us. But how would we know? So Rafael Nunez, the cognitive scientist here in UCSD, recorded speakers of Aymara. They live in the Andes Highlands of Bolivia, Peru, and Chile. He finds that they have a reverse concept of time. They think about the future as behind them and something they cannot see and cannot know. The past is in front of them as something they already know. They've already experienced it. They've already seen it. 
Nanette finds, furthermore, that it is not just a matter of speaking, a manner of speaking, but that they also gesture in ways that reflect this style of thinking. If I say, don't look back, it's all behind you. You see my hands are pushing to the back. Look ahead, the future is bright. The AMR, they gesture to the space behind them when they refer to the future. So this is the kind of evidence that people look at that metaphors infuse you. They infuse your body while you're communicating. They reach down into the unconscious part of your living, which is how you gesture. You'll see your digestion, that these are things that come naturally to us. Gesture, in many ways, mirrors our thoughts. We're often not conscious, but they're very important, not just communication, but they help us actually to think. You should try sometime, if you have nothing better to do, sit on your hands and try, see how long you can talk without gesturing. That's why gesture really central, both to thinking and communication. So that's why politicians who speak in public must be coached how to gesture effectively. The audiences will pick up on their gestures and react to them in unconscious way. Let's keep going along this line of thinking. Remember why, why we're exploring this. Do you think differently than I do? Do I think differently than you? Do we have different good lives? I'm getting to the point. Bear with me. Whenever we give direction, we can refer to either side of ourselves. You want to go to the restroom? It's down that way, down the steps, and turn to your right. Oh, the parking lot, well, you head out this way, then you turn right and turn right again. We also say, if you turn right, it's in front of you. You know how the building behind you, the parking lot's in front of you. Once in a while, and sometimes we do say west or east, north or south. If you head north and Interstate 5, then you get off the La Jolla Village Drive and head west towards UCSD. So when do we say left, right, north, south? If I were to ask you, where's your left? You can do it quickly. Although I do have a colleague who swears she can't remember where she's her left or her right, so she looked at her wedding ring. But most of us can do this. If I were to ask you, where is south east? I don't think it's that way. No, I think so. You would have to think about. You would, it, it doesn't help that the windows are closed, but normally you think it's that way, southeast, that way, okay, southwest, southeast. But notice um, we can immediately decide what's left and right, but north and south. We really have to orient ourselves. It, 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 we have large windows that help even more. A lot of it orient to the ocean. 
I moved from the East Coast, and it took me a long time to remember why that West is toward the ocean and East is the way. I still, every time I, I go on Interstate 8 West, it takes me a moment. But if we were in a building, let's say a basement, it would take us a few seconds to really figure this out. This is the, the version of the Warfian hypothesis that many people are studying now. Not that we can't do north and south, but that we have to take a moment. We have to look for topographical landmarks to help us. We're swaying at the ocean. In New York City, the World Trade Center used to be that landmark for a lot of people to what is north and south. It's easier for us to do left and right because of our language and the way that our, our whole being is aligned with this way of thinking. There are a number of languages that use north-south, east-west as a means of giving direction. John Haviland described one such language, Gugu Yimithir. It's an Australian Aboriginal language that has geocentric forms of reference. At any time, speakers and listeners know where their bodies are. And they use those points not only for giving direction, but part of the verb system in the language. Why might these differences exist? It's the cultural history of the language. In urban geography, things with our enormous built environment, left and right, things to make more sense because it's relative to how we move through space. North and South requires a knowledge about the Earth. It's something that's fixed rather than local or relative to my body, wherever it may be. John Haviland, he's a colleague of mine and a professor here at UCSD in anthropology. He describes their ability in this way. They don't look at geographic or topographical landmark. They refer to global coordinate based on the angle of the terrain and probably the location of the sun. Do we know during the day where the sun is? Most of the time not. This means they really don't use north, south, east, west, even in the same way that we do. We think of west toward the ocean and east is opposite, if you think the way that I do. And north followed up the coast and south down the coast, maybe toward Mexico. They don't, they have an ability to use global coordinates to locate themselves in the world. If you think about it, this is really different about how we orient ourselves, how we think about the problem of space and location or where we are at any given time. We know we're in this building, we're in a chair, I'm here, I'm speaking to you, but do I know where my body is relative to the sun? No. But once more, back to the topic of the evening. Let me ask this question now. How much of our sense of well-being is related to the words we use and the language we know? If someone says to you, first you go north, then you head east, and immediately after, south. 
Do you have a moment of disorientation, uncertainty? You would probably say, do you mean left and then right? Different languages feel strange in an emotional sense. We feel unmoored and panic sets in if we can't immediately repair it. We might just leave the room. Much of our well-being is having the words to say what we want, to express our deepest thoughts, emotions, and beliefs. We often think these emotions come from ideas or images that words evoke. But we're learning that words are intimately connected to the body and how the body interacts with the world. The speaking body is always moving, always in contact, touching, holding things, picking up tools. The body is not simply a vehicle for the vocal tract, for conveying speech, but it's itself, it's part of how a language has meaning. Our words convey how our bodies move through the landscape and how we orient ourselves to others. Now you're probably wondering by this time, under what circumstances would somebody like me grow up with sign language and learn to speak two or more years later than everyone else in this room? My parents are deaf. We used ASL to communicate at home. Both of my parents went to a special boarding school for deaf children. My father in Minnesota, my mother in Washington, D.C. Then they both became college students at what was called Gallaudet College at that time, a small liberal arts founded by Abraham Lincoln in 1864 for deaf students in Washington, D.C. And then they both became professors at this university. They retired. My father's 92, my mother's 88. They're doing well, thanks for asking. <laughs> I'm a child of professors, and it's not surprising I ended up being a professor, and I've been one for 30 years here at UCSD. But back to our topic at hand, the good life and human language. Do I experience the world differently in sign language than in spoken English? Does sign language capture a sense of the world differently than spoken English? I've gotten even wilder questions than that. How do signers dream? Do they dream in signs? Or do they imagine they're speaking? What's really underlying the question is what is it like to think differently? We might ask, what's the good life for the Samming? in Finland, or the wall appearing in Australia. It's hard to conceive of a vision of the world if we're not using our own words. Those of you who are bilingual or multilingual, you understand how to answer this question. We are all capable of any human language, but we end up speaking only one, sometimes two or three or more. Each language fashioned the world in a particular way, and different languages fashion the world differently. So what about sign language? Is it really like spoken language, except that it's not spoken? 
Some sign language linguists argue that sign and spoken languages are fundamentally the same, except for the fact that sign languages use the hands, the body, and the face, and spoken languages use the tongue, the mouth, and the vocal tract. But other sign linguists argue differently, that the medium of the language matters a great deal. Sign languages have far more capacity of showing what things look like than spoken languages do. Spoken languages can show what things sound like more than sign languages can. Think about these words. A baby bird cheeks, a cricket chirps, and beetles chitter. All these words begin with ch to convey the sounds of birds and insects. We can talk about the quality of light with words that begin with glow, to gleam, glitter, glimmer, and glow. These convey the idea of sheen and smoothness. Think glib, it means to talk smoothly. Or think ump, rump, plump, stump, hump, and of course, mumps. Things that are round and extending out. Sign language uses the speed of fingers to show the quality of water, whether it trickles, flows, or rushes. If I'm doing an impression of someone in sign language, I describe what they look like, the shape of the hair, how the hair moves, the kind of clothing, how their legs move while they're walking. In speech, you might imitate their style of speaking. But if you wanted, you could describe the quality of water. You can describe the shape of hair, clothing, and how they walk. And sinus can also describe how things might sound. We do it by describing other qualities of sound, how low-frequency sounds feel on the body or how to read music. I used to be able to read music when I was helping my daughter learn to play the violin where she needed to hold her fingers for each note on the sheet. But back to the topic at hand. Does each language present us with just one view of the world? Or are we able to imagine worlds beyond our languages? Yes and no. Yes, we can imagine worlds beyond what our language provides us. You should did. I told you how sign languages work, and you might have thought about a person while I was describing her. But we live in the world that our languages convey for us, because that is precisely how languages work. They carve out a reality, they're rooted in the world, and they convey to us a particular understanding of how our bodies move in that world. There are cultures in the world where hearing people use sign language. You may not know this. Adam Kendon, he's an anthropologist who studies gesture, has written extensively about a sign language that widows use when they go into mourning for their disease and while these are widows speaking while pairing. In these cultures, there is a taboo against speech during certain rituals, certain times of life, and this particular case, it only applies to women. So, to, um, um, to communicate, Kendon 
they, they use something he calls Walpurian language, but there's no deaf people. Wouldn't it be better if we all spoke the same language? Surely that would do away with a lot of misunderstanding and cultural conflict. Does it seem to you that maybe 697,000 languages is too Would we have more harmony if we can understand each other's languages? Serbians and Croatians, Serbs and Croats speak essentially the same language. The differences are comparable to British and American English, yet they've been locked in deadly conflict. David Crystal, a linguist, lays out the argument for language diversity. The 7,000 languages of the world reflect the magnitude of human existence, all the different ways that humans experience the world. In diversity, we have possibility. Uniformity and conformity stifles innovation. So at least 7,000 good lives but we only end up living one or two. I'm paraphrasing Clifford Gill. Sometimes three or four of them. Crystal said that if more of us were multilingual, we could come to appreciate better how different languages carve out views of the world. Any day, I would rather sign than speak. I feel at home with sign language. I don't have to worry about tripping over my words making sure I'm relaxed while I'm speaking. I can simply be. What is the future of sign language? I don't know. I don't know. They might disappear. One language disappeared every two weeks. This is the news article about a language you've never heard of. Yeah, which was formerly spoken in Alaska. But the last speaker died January 23rd, 2008. I think one just disappeared while I was here talking to you. I know sign languages that have disappeared. I work with small sign languages, smaller than American sign language, in two different parts of the world, in Israel and in Turkey. There are communities where entire communities created a sign language one or two generations ago because there were deaf people born into the community. They naturally began signing. Just as you might, if you were in a marketplace somewhere you've never been at before, say in Jordan, Morocco, or India, and you had to communicate that you wanted to buy something, you would gesture with your hand. I want two of those. How much? All of us, including you, have the capability of using a sign language. It's just that you don't live in a place where you need to. In the communities I studied, people themselves took basic gestures like this and transformed them into a new sign language in order to communicate about the most important things of their lives when they're at home, at work, at play, or at prayer. My colleagues and I and our graduate students, we come from four different universities, the University of Haifa in Israel, 
Stonybrook University in Long Island and Tufts University in Boston. We travel to these villages and we track how gestures of a few people become sign language with a lexicon and a grammar in one or two generations. It doesn't take long to build a language, surprisingly. We've discovered that the necessary ingredients are already there. Human brains and human bodies. When the communicative urge is strong, language will emerge and it will flourish. It will transform from something hard to do to something very easy to do. Here, I'm writing in something called a pit pit. It's a small tractor that pulled a, um, uh, a platform behind it. This is the village in central Turkey, in the Taurus Mountains that run along the southern length of the country. It's a beautiful place, and during the winter, the snow blocks the road, and the people that live in the village that doff the landscape cannot travel down the mountain to the major cities that lie along the coast. Because of this, many people don't attend school, and they live in the same villages where they were born. The sign language I study is used in several villages. Each one is small, about 500 people. The main crops of the region are wheat and fruit, apples, pears, plums, walnuts, and almonds. They raise goats and some cows. Every home has a television, and everyone has a cell phone. Many people drive cars, and yes, they follow traditional ways of life. I went with one young man who was bringing in the sheep from his family um, area, his family farm. And he was checking his cell phone for Facebook messages while he was herding the sheep back into the shelter behind his home. They're everywhere modern, like us, but they're used on language, unlike you. I want to end here with an image of another place where I work in Israel. This is in the Negev Dashing. This is a picture of me with one of the signers I work with and one of my colleagues. This is the village of Bedouins, who are traditional Arabs that live in a village not far from Beersheba, which is a major urban center in Israel, a major city in the Negev Desert. This village has 3,500 people living there and about 130 deaf people. The spoken language of the village is Arabic. Many, but not all, also speak Hebrew and speak it well. And many people in the village use sign language as naturally as they use Arabic. For them, sign language is another village, is another language of the community, in addition to Arabic and Hebrew. When we first came to the village, they couldn't figure out why we were there. They think of sign language as something you would naturally do, as naturally breathing. It was like we had come to study them breathing. Now, 12 years of traveling there, twice a year, they understand why we're there. We have discovered that signs, words, appear quickly in a new language. Signers make the transition from stringing together gestures to making real signs, which is the equivalent of a word. In 2005, we published a paper 
in the proceedings of the, natural, of the National Academy of Sciences, PNAS. We reported that the Steiners followed the same persistent word order, even though the language is new, and obviously no one is telling them what order to use. This consistent word order, it turns out, is not the same as either spoken Arabic or spoken Hebrew. They created a word order that turns out to be one of the most common word orders in the world, subject, object, verb. We say the cat ate the mouse. But in a subject, object, verb order, you say the cat, the mouse, ate. This is one of the most common word orders, Japanese, Korean, Turkish, and many languages of the world use this particular order. The New York Times said that we had discovered the fundamental word order underlying all human languages. We would not make such, and we did not make a claim like that. But it's satisfying to have discovered a way that sign language can teach us something about human beings, about their history of using languages. This is the argument that David Crystal and others have made, that each language, however small, however few uses it has, is the repository of human knowledge and creativity. This is the image of sundown. The village is in the Negev Desert, and I've stepped outside to get ready to leave the village. I have to drive two hours to get to the airport, and then I'm flying home to San Diego. I realize that this moment, I look at this picture, and I realize I love this part of my job. I get to be in the desert, communicating with the Bedouin woman. I'm surrounded by everything different, the houses, the unpaved roads, the parched trees, and the faint smell of livestock. This is not my life at all. I live in Del Mar. But for the moment, I imagine this is a good life. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.